coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. And he starts screaming, get down here, get down here. You have to get down here now. Fish are rising everywhere. Get down here. So we're in float tubes on the other side. You know, we kick, we kick, we get across. I, I got the a big yellow hexagene of dry fly on. I see something rise behind me. I do a back cast. It lands what I call the circle, the rise. It hits a circle. Fish smashes it. I hook the fish. It's a 19-inch brook trout. That was Kevin McKay taking us into the hexagena hatch and brook trout. Pike, smallmouth, Atlantic salmon, and big brook trout today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Quick and easy way to support this podcast is by supporting our sponsors. You can click through at the website. Uh, you can head over to wetflyswing.com sponsors or click through any of the sponsors links we highlight in the show uh, as we head forward today. Thanks in advance if you had a chance to support uh, small businesses and this podcast in one shot. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Meal Bars. Each bar is 700 calories and fits easily into the pocket of your backpack, vest, or wherever you need. Range Bars are made using only the highest quality gluten-free ingredients, and they are the most convenient and compact way to get out the door and on the river. You can support this podcast and a great local company right now by heading over to wetflyswing.com range. That's R-A-N-G-E. Range Meal Bars, a legitimate meal in your pocket. Today's episode is sponsored by Choda Outdoor, legendary comfort and equipment you can trust. Choda insists on the finest materials and craftsmanship you can assure you have the highest standards of quality. You'll feel in control of the elements in your Choda gear. Every product is solidly backed with a no-nonsense warranty against defects. Head over to wetflyswing.com Choda right now. That's Choda, C-H-O-T-A, to support this podcast and the Choda Outdoor family right now. Kevin McKay takes us into Maine for a tour around some of the best brook trout and smallmouth bass fishing uh, we have in the country. We find out and discover how to fish the West Branch for big brook trout. Uh, we uh, hear about which streamers you should be using if you only had one. And uh, we get a ton of great resources, including fly shops, um, other websites, uh, forums. We talk about the forum that Kevin has at his website that is about 20 years running. So tons of great information. We're going to dig into all of this and cover a number of species on top of brook trout. We even find out uh, how they lived off the grid for six years and, and how and why they offer free lodging at their camp on the river. Another big one. So without further ado, here we go. Kevin McKay from MainFlyFish.com. How's it going, Kevin? Great, man. How you doing? Good. Thanks for uh, setting a little time aside uh, today to dig into some on Maine fishing. We've uh, we've had a few episodes in the past on Maine, and we've talked about some of the diversity of species, so we will probably highlight those as we go. But you've got a guiding service, so we're going to dig into that. But before we take it to the guide, let's bring it right back to fly fishing really quick. How'd you get into this? How did it all start really quick? Well, I got my guide license. I'm going on my 21st year of guiding, and I think I started fly fishing probably two or three years prior to that, um, I had really never heard of fly fishing. I kind of grew up, my dad liked to troll for landlocked salmon at Joe Mary Lake. So that's what I did as a kid growing up. And the funny thing is, as much as I enjoyed that time with my dad, I found it very boring to troll. So we'd see rising fish and 
I, I remember, hey, let's cast to these fish and he'd troll right through the fish because that's what he liked to do. And as time went on, you know, getting in my 20s, chasing girls, kind of got away from fishing altogether. Then, you know, started to settle down, got back into spin fishing for bass. Again, my dad didn't like to do the bass, so I'd kind of chase whatever bass because it was easy to catch with a spinning rod. And then uh, I might have been married at the time or almost getting married, but I'd stopped at my parents' house and my dad was sitting there looking at an Orvis catalog and an um, L.L. Bean catalog. And I asked him, I said, you know, what are you doing? And he said that uh, the guy he works with knows of a remote pond that has three to five pound wild brook trout in it and that he would take my dad if he bought a fly rod. So he was sitting there looking at fly rods and it happened to be the next day or a couple of days later that Ella Bean had a 50% off on rods. So I said, hey, I'll go. I went, bought a Streamlight rod reel line. I mean, I might've spent a hundred bucks. <laughs> it wasn't very much money. What was the Streamlight? Streamlight, that was the name of the brand? Ella Bean Streamlight. So that was, you know, like the Scott Radiant or whatever, but it was, you know, it was their brand. And that was my, I might still have the reel sitting in the bathroom as a decoration. But then I was loading trucks at UPS, talking to the driver that I was loading trucks for. And he's like, oh, I fly fish. You know, I just got back from Montana out, or I had been to Montana last summer. And this is wintertime. And he said, I'll take you opening day in Maine is technically April 1st. And my very first time fly fishing, he had me meet him at like one o'clock in the morning. We had to go to the West Branch. It was crazy. Looking back, it was the most foolish thing to do, but <laughs> we had me on the West Branch. It's by Mount Katahdin. It's very remote, no phones, no cell service, not even really any camps. It's paper company land. And we get there, the snow. He says, put this fly on, do this and this, and leaves me. It seems what, you know, like he was gone for like an hour or so. He comes back. How you doing? I mean, it's cold. There's no reason for us to be there before... <laughs> The sun was up because it was cold and it started snowing. Well, he checked my fly and I hadn't had a fly on probably for an hour. I was just flailing. And uh, that was my first experience of fly fishing. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. And then we went again. It was sometime in May. Did the same thing. He had to have me meet him at one o'clock at his, you know, at his house beyond the water before it got dark and was sitting there in the dark. It's a warmer time of year. I could hear splashing. And as the sun came up, landlocked salmon are flying out of the water for blueing olives. And ever since then, that's all I've done is fly fish. And, you know, as time went on, you know, I just got into the smallmouth and just, well, I'll go back a little bit. So as I was getting into it, there was no real internet. It was just starting. So I remember going to, we had a little fly shop here in Bangor and in the fly shop owner was very rough and, other than that, going to the West Branch, I couldn't find places to fish. And I went and, you know, go to the fly shop and, you know, I want to try to tie a fly, you know, whatever, Mickey Finn. And what do you need from materials? And, you know, I'd be kind of scared at the fly shop. And, and so, and you couldn't find information. He's not going to really tell you where to go other than the West Branch because that's, you know, Maine has three or four popular rivers. And I'm not spot burning by saying the West Branch because, you know, it's in the book, 50 Places the Fish Before You Die. That's one of the rivers to fish. That's right. I was kind of scared going into the fly shop. I didn't know anything. And uh, Maine has some great fly shops that full of knowledge. And you go in and they help you out and they give you some places to start. And plus, 
there's information all over the internet. But back then, that's why I started mainflyfish.com, which back then I called it the mainflyfishingjournal.com. And I would go fishing, we'll say to the West Branch, and they weren't even calling it blogging. And I would say, I went to the West Branch, caddis were hatching, I caught five salmon this size to this size from this time of day, the flows were this. And I was putting that on this mainflyfishingjournal.com. And then I started a forum. And then I had a friend come home from the military and I showed him the site and he said that was junk. The name was too hmm. long. So I looked up Maine fly fish. Back then, Maine fly fishing was taken by um, a fly shop, fly fishing only, I think. Maine fly fishing only is something website. So I started mainflyfish.com. And because of the Facebook and Instagram, the site still gets a million pages viewed a year. I think it's very good, but at, in probably in the back before Facebook, um, it was 11 million pages a year. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Because of your forum that you had. Because of the forum, um, randomly, I would have different people, you know, write. The local paper would often do articles about me. <laughs> My journey is, you know, I have no, I, I can't explain why I've been as lucky as I am, but, you know, I feel very honored to be on Scott Flyrod's pro staff because I'm in Maine. And I feel a lot of the pro staff are out west. You know what I mean? It's Montana, Colorado, Idaho. So any time that I've been asked to be part of a pro staff, I've been very honored. You know, you see on Instagram all the crap about pro staffers. Well, I'm very honored to be part of, you know, these teams. They have some great people that I've found over the years. So I've been very honored. But my career has gone on in my guiding. Um, I've been at UPS for 31 years. Hmm, wow. You know, so I was part-time when I, I started fly fishing and I was just talking to someone about my guide service the other day, how as a driver, I know this is going to sound crazy when I say this, I get seven weeks vacation and my guide service kind of grew as I, I would get more and more vacations. My guide service would grow, <laughs> which was kind of neat. So now with the guiding, like right now, I'm, I'm completely booked for next year. I, I have seven weeks off. Every single day is booked. Every single weekend's booked from like middle of April to middle of October. Um, and then probably a couple of days I probably shouldn't be guiding. But I've been very fortunate. You know, Bob Clouser, he did a book on smallmouth. And my photos are in that book on the Penobscot. Oh, right. For smallies. And, you know, in the back. Everyone else just had the name, and I'm like, hey, can you please put mainflyfish.com in there? <laughs> no one else put their websites, or they didn't have websites at the time, you know. So I've been very fortunate and no idea why, maybe because I'm just kind of, you know, out there, and I don't say no to anything. Yeah, yeah, you're doing it. It's cool because if you look at the website, your website, you've got two. You've got the home, you know, main fly fish, but then when you click, like, fishing reports, it goes over to the – yeah, I guess that's the forum, right? You've got a forum section. Yeah, it goes over the forum because other people are doing reports. I do reports. Oh, gotcha. So that's it. So that forum is still, if somebody's planning on heading up to Maine for, you know, a trip, is that forum still pretty active? Would that be a good place to go or at least get some information? Yeah, it's active. And also what's interesting is just doing searches. I guided, I think a couple of years ago, I guided a father and a son. The son was graduating uh, Maine Maritime Academy. And so the dad booked me for the West Branch and the kid, you know, he goes, as I was learning to fly fish, he goes, I would just do searches through Maine Fly Fish. And I would just find information, you know, from whatever the 20 years of forum information, it's still there. 
even if we'll say Bill is not posting anymore, he used to post, you know, every day for two years. That information is still there that if you look through the forum, you can find that information or through the blogs. It's interesting the way it's worked because you've been there earlier on. So you saw the the forums when they were really popular and then Facebook has kind of taken, you know, the Facebook groups now or, you know, probably taken over a lot. That's kind of the modern day forums. Yeah. Yeah, that's the new forum. So but your forum, it's cool. You still have it going because obviously it's a still a big resource. Who were, you know, in Maine? you know, in the past, who are other people in Maine? Are there any like people that, you know, folks might know of that maybe influenced you or just big in Maine? Danny Legere, um, he, for the longest time, had the Maine Guide Fly Shop. And I didn't find him until probably, I don't know, a little bit later when I started going up into that Greenville area. Because the Greenville area, you have Moosehead Lake, which is the largest lake in Maine. And then the Kennebec runs out of that. That's a famous river. There's a couple other ones I won't mention. But if people do Google searches, they'll find them. But as you know, you'd travel up through Greenville and stop, and you'd hit Danny Legier's fly shop because it was the first thing you came into town. It was the first thing you saw. And him and Penny, Danny would run trips. And I mean, he was running, I think at one time he told me he was had two, 250 days coming out of that shop with other guides, him himself, plus all these other guides. I don't know. I think like Maine's a hard place to guide. It's not like, florida or montana where these guys are running 200 250 days a year you know i'm running i don't know 90 days a year 80 to 90 you know depending on i'd always bounce things off danny i'd talk to danny another guy is carol Ware. carol runs a, a guide school so maine is the hardest in the country by what i understand because to get a guy's license in maine you can't just by what i understand like i have a friend that guides in montana i think he's he sent a hundred dollars in and he got a guy's license, but he couldn't guide. He had to work for an outfitter. So here in Maine, we don't have to work under outfitters, but we have to take a, it's changed over the years, but I think you take a 200 written questions. It's all like multiple choice. You get past that. Then you do a mapping compass. So you go to do true North magnetic North and they'll give you a starting point. And they'll say, you know, they'll give a topographical map and they'll say, you know, go from the outlet of Joe Mary Lake to the inlet to this, to that. And you can only be off by so many degrees. Once you get past that, you, you know, 20 years ago, they called it a lost person. You're sitting in front of a panel of, like I said, in front of um, two wardens and a, a master main guide. So they want you to, to show them that you can do a lost person scenario. Mine was you had a lake, you're boating across a lake, you go to shore, you're having lunch with your clients, and one has to go pee, he wanders off, he doesn't come back. What do you do? Mm, damn. I'll guess on that. So so the person's lost, or the person just doesn't come back. What do you do? You've got another person with you there, right? Let me give you one other scenario. There's a trail around the whole lake, okay, and Near where you are, there's also a swamp and there's a mountain kind of around this this whole lake area. So what do you do? Yeah, so that's scenario with the trail and then there's a swamp and a mountain. And you have two clients. One's gone missing. One's gone. God, that is a tricky one. I mean, that's the thing. I guess you stay. First, you got your client. You don't want to lose another client. Yeah. Um, so you pretty much have to, you know, make sure. Yeah, I mean, stay together. And, uh, you know, I would definitely do a somehow mark where we're again it comes down to the scenario right what else do you have i guess i'm assuming you don't have any any electronics so you know i would say take the client 
I guess you can use GPS now, but when I took it, you weren't allowed. It was just map and compass. Right. If you said, well, I'm following my GPS, your batteries are dead. Well, I got backup batteries. Well, those are dead too. That's what the wardens would say to you. Yeah, those are gone. Yeah, so no GPS. Uh, but what I understand now, you can... Yeah, you can use the GPS. So I'll tell you what I, what I said, if I remember. You take the client that's there, you make them get a fire going. You keep that client busy. You don't leave the spot. I want a fire going in case so the other client can see the smoke. Um, he knows this is where we started, so we have to stay here. Mm, good idea. Okay. Right. There's a swamp and a mountain and a trail. Most people would say, well, he probably is walking around that trail. When people get lost, they get scared. They end up in swamps. Usually, I had a friend that was a warden, and he helped years ago write The Lost Person. And What he told me was when they would go looking for people that are lost in the woods, they often found them in swamps. And they usually, they get scared, they start running, and they end up downhill because it's the easiest way to go. So when you're looking at this map, that's why I said there was a swamp. If you saw a topographic map, you would know that it went downhill because that's where the swamp was. And most people that are lost end up in that swamp. Another fact that he told me, which I never knew, is if it's pitch black out, it's impossible to run uphill in the dark. You always end up going back. Oh, wow. I've never tested it. Crazy. <laughs> so they end up down, like they're lost at night and they try to run. They often end up down in swamps and they're usually naked. They shed their clothes because they're panicking. They're getting overheated. Right. And then hyperthermia kicks in. So in Maine, now you have um, recreational fishing and hunting. Back when I was doing it, you could become a master main guide. So if you passed all three, you were a master main guide. There's no more master main guides in the state of Maine. I took the last test. It was a hunting test. I don't hunt, but I still took it. I passed with like a 72. I passed it. So I'm a master main guide. Yeah, there you go. So I can do rack, which I don't do any, like I could do snowmobile trips, four-wheeling trips. I could do hunting. So I could do, you know, duck hunts, bird hunts, deer, moose, bear, but I don't, I don't hunt. I just, I fish. If I'm not fishing, I'm talking about fishing. I'm tying flies. <laughs> like we talked, I'm writing articles about fishing. Right. Are there any restrictions once you get in just to go on this track a little bit? And I will say the map and compass is interesting. I think that's a good thing to have for the test just because it keeps people, you know, they've got to kind of take that next step. But I will say that my phone with the mapping software, especially with like Onyx, yep. now it's never really failed me. You know what I mean? So I don't really carry a map and compass, but I do think it is a good idea to like as another test. So that is interesting on, you know, the stuff. Yeah. Like for your work. If you were to hunt, would there any be restrictions or could you just like right now just go grab a gun and be like, okay, I'm a hunting guide? In Maine, you have to do hunter safety, which the last time I went hunting, I was 14 years old. Right. But you don't have to have a thing where it says like, hey, um, I've got, I even know how, like you're going to get an animal. I've got 10 years of hunting experience. Like you could go out there without and just kind of go for it. Right. I don't have to prove I can hunt, I guess, right now because I'm a master main guide. Right. Exactly. That's probably the difference between the, when you said Montana, right? I think the difference is, is that you got checks and balances. So in Montana, anybody can get a guide, but you have to be through an outfitter, which forces people for the most part, probably to have a better, right? Like if you're with an outfitter, chances are you, as a client, you might have a better shot, right? Uh, getting a good experience. So they have a check there. Right. Like the outfitter is going to train that guide. Exactly. But you do hear about stories about people like there are all, all sorts of random guides out there that, 
and you probably see that too, right? In Maine, or do you see that? Do you see actually new guides come in? You're like, whoa, that guy is kind of new, doesn't know what he's doing. Um, you do see it, but what's interesting about Maine is a lot of people get their guides license as a prestige thing because it's so hard to get, and they don't guide. Oh wow! They're an outdoorsman, and they they want to you know see if they can pass the test. Like Joe, he hunted. He he's an example because he's the most recent guide I know. And last year was his first you know time guiding, and so he recently went through the test. You know, and it's interesting. And he was doing going to do some trips for me. And he's kind of like the first guide that I said, okay, if he's going to do some trips for me, I want to take him to take me fishing. And where I have like a buddy that he's like, he got his guide license two or three years ago, but he's like one of the best outdoorsmen I know. So there was no issue sending him a trip. Like Joe, for me, he was new to guiding, new as a friendship. You know, so we went fishing and took me to a place I'd never been, which was kind of fun for me. And we caught fish. Yeah, in Maine. Yeah, in Maine. And so that was very interesting for me because I don't, as much as I guide, I don't hire guides. Um, I have friends that are guides and I'll often go with them. And usually that's in Florida. Like we go to New York a lot, steelhead fishing, um, Salmon River. And 20 something years ago, I hired a guide. And actually that guy, that was the first guy I ever hired. And it was interesting because I was probably six months from taking my test. So it was good for me to to see what he did and how he handled, like, for instance, he like jumped out of the boat and was pulling the drift rope back up river in April in super high water because we didn't get on fish. So it showed me, it was like a good example of to go above and beyond for your clients. Exactly. Because I know guides that they're booked for the day and you don't get the effort. You know, they know they're getting X amount for the day and they don't look at wanting them to come back. Like I want everyone to come back. I want everyone to come back to Maine and fish with us. But I think everyone has a different personality. What does, um, you know, with Maine, like the opportunities, like what are people coming up there for you, you know, with on the guide trips, what species are you really covering? It's interesting. Um, I'll give you a little bit about what we do here. I give free lodging. I always try to do something different. And I had this idea years ago of giving free lodging if you book two or more days. And so we built a bunkhouse, sleeps, has basically two full-size beds on the bottom and the bunks on the top. And people would come and stay. And I don't feed them. And that, I think, has exploded what we do. So it's not like like Montana. You're not going, I'm the destination, I guess, almost. We've kind of created this fun, you come here, we built a tiki bar, we got a like a a real tiki bar overlooking the river. Oh, wow. With surround sound, a grill, a bar, um, a pull-down screen. We do movies for kids. Um, we have a fire pit that overlooks the water. Is this all off the grid? We were off the grid until last February. Mm. So in the wintertime, we did not have running water up until February. Can't drink our water here, but we use it for showering. We fill up one-gallon water jugs at friends' houses. We have a heat line, so we have a full well pump in the river. So, like, right now, I can go in and do dishes and take a shower. We lost power on Friday. We just hit a switch. We still have some solar, and we get a generator. So we lived off the generator or solar for six years here, I think. I'd fill up, you know, five-gallon water jugs at UPS. That's how we flood. Because we do have a septic. So 
of not having running water in the wintertime, we would uh, dump, you know, water, five-gallon jugs, and I'd fill them up every two days at UPS, and we'd, you know, they just dump them in the back of the toilet. So as time has gone, we've kind of got it dialed in. We put power power away because our generator is, it's not propane, it was gas, and I was spending so much in the wintertime on gas. Because where we're located, we have these giant pine trees that solar is only so good, and it's really only in the summertime that for us, this, you know, we have a very basic solar system because the solar is so expensive. Upgrading, and it was like ten to twenty thousand dollars to upgrade our system, and it was like four grand to put power in, and our whole place is on propane, refrigerator, our heat, you know, hot water, everything's propane, so our electric bill is only thirty five dollars a month. Oh wow! So it's that's very nice cheaper than solar that's one of those things where the incentives yeah. you know that's why solar is it's like buying an electric car yeah. right exactly buying an electric car it's close it's probably getting close actually the funny thing i was watching youtube this morning and i don't know if you've seen it it's called canoe it's a, a new electric it's an electric truck oh yeah yeah i think i have heard of the canoe and that's the name of the truck yeah it's called it's canoe and they have an off-road version pickup truck and you can put a camper on and i'm like Tell you what, if that, if you can get some miles out of the, how much you get out? There's like a hundred k. What's the price? No, it was like fifty five thousand. Oh wow, that's not bad. Jeez, that's cheaper than a Ford. <laughs> it was two hundred. You get two hundred miles on a charge. I just don't know how they do in Maine. That's the thing. I see it now. It's like a futuristic. What it looks like is a, um, almost like a VW van, like a futuristic Volkswagen van. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was watching that. <laughs> I was like, that's quite something. But I'm sorry I got off on a tangent about the off-the-grid thing. No, it's great. I love this. That's what you said earlier. The tangents are good. I think that um, where we were going was... Was what I guide for. Yeah, yeah, your guide. What species are you focusing on? So it's interesting. Is I'm known, funny thing is, I'm known for smallmouth bass, but I never fished other than a little bit with a spinning rod. When I got into fly fishing, all I fished was trout and salmon, like... I'm out Western Maine, you know, chasing the Rangeley brook trout. I was always up on the West Branch chasing trout, landlocked salmon and brook trout. Locally, you know, trying to find small wild brookies. That's what I did. I traveled the state. And when I got my guide's license, I bet you it was the first three or four years, all I did was guide smallmouth with a spinning rod. It was crazy. I'd bring a fly rod, but it was always a spinning rod because the Penobscot is you know, it's one of the best in the country for smallies. Years and years ago, Field and Stream rated as, you know, one of the top in the country. Lefty Cray's been up many times, not with me, but the fish, the Penobscot for smallmouth, you know, the owner of Orvis has been up here, the fish for the smallies and the Penobscot, not with me, but things I've read over the years. But slowly and slowly, now I only do maybe a handful of smallmouth trips of fly rods. So I went to what we do here with the bunkhouse and the, the tiki bar because years and years ago, the guy that took me to the West Branch for the first time took me fishing for smallmouth for the first time with a fly rod. And as time went on, I wanted to position my, my uh, if I built a camp, kind of where I did in the Howland area north of Bangor because within 20 minutes, I have four to five boat launches for smallmouth because I have a jet boat and then it's an hour and a half to the West branch for landlocked salmon. So like a lot of times, you know, some people come up on a Friday night, they'll get here. We'll hang out, drink around the, you know, in the tiki bar around the campfire 
and then we'll get up early. We'll run up and do the West Branch, do trout and salmon. And the second day, we'll do smallmouth. And then they head home. Someone else comes back in. The next day, we do I do the West Branch. And the next day, we do bass. But every year, it kind of has changed. So now, like, I got some guys that come up from uh, the Cape Cod fly fishermen. This coming year, they got four days where they'll come up. We're going to do smallmouth one day. We're going to go and do northern pike one day. We're going to actually do a day trip for Muskie, which is three hours from here. We will leave here at 5 a.m., be on the water by 9, off the water by 3, and home by 6. And we'll go up and do Muskie in the day. And then we'll do trout and salmon one day. Wow. Is trout and salmon the Atlantic? Are we talking like, um, I'm not even totally familiar. I guess genetically they're exactly the same as the Atlantics, but they're smaller. They're anywhere from like, we'll say six inches up to, I think the biggest I've landed in Maine is 26 inches on the West Branch. The biggest I think a client has landed is 22. How are you hitting those Atlantic salmon? What's the technique? We'll say landlocked. So Atlantic salmon get up to be like 30, you know, inches, 15, 20 pounds. So these ones don't. Oh, right. But the species is, they are Atlantic salmon. Genetically, they're landlocked. Yeah, landlocked. I guess a landlocked Atlantic salmon, you could call them that. Yeah. But if you look at them, they just look like small versions of Atlantics. Gotcha. And so in the West Branch, it's a mix of wild brook trout and wild landlocked salmon. So, you know, fishing and we're targeting, it depends on the time of year. A lot of times I don't go to the West Branch until like the week before Memorial. It's pretty cold up there. Back in the heyday, there used to be a lot of smelts. But guys will go up and troll the dead water in the spring. I don't do that. My April is usually chasing northern pike because they're up in the shallows. And then into May, I'll do bass. And then the West Branch depends on what's going on for weather flows. And in May, you can hit blueing olives and you can hit the Hendrickson hatch. Yeah. Is that for Atlantic? I'm just trying to think on Atlantic salmon, these landlocking. Essentially, this is almost like the Great Lakes, the same sort of thing, steelhead that are going to the lake. Are these fish going down to the lake and then coming back up into the streams? Nope. Like a 26-incher, I'd imagine. They just, they're hunkering down in the deeper water. Um, there's so many dams on our rivers that they're not necessarily getting back to the lake. Oh, I see. I'm trying to think in that section if they make it. There is a lake down below. I just, I think there's a dam in between. I don't think they make it. So I think they're holding in the river. I mean, that's the amazing thing because, right, I mean, a fish that's 26 inches is eating some food. There's a lot of, um, I mean, tons of stoneflies in that river. I was on the river, I don't know, several years ago, and there was a fire at the pump house. So I'm out there, and we're doing the evening hatch, and all of a sudden, the river just drops to a trickle because they shut down the dam. And the guy running the campground is walking around and just throwing stones back into the river. We couldn't see it, but he was yelling to us, and he said, the stones are just stoneflies everywhere. So there's a lot of stones in the river. It's a lot of caddis on that river. But like I said, in the, you know, in the spring. Yeah, lots of bugs. Bluing olives, the Hendrickson's in the beginning. And then, you know, two major hatches almost the whole time is the caddis and the stoneflies for me. That's if I'm doing dries. Today's episode is sponsored by Stonefly Nets, putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. Charleston, South Carolina native Ethan Eigelhart was bitten by the fly fishing bug in 2014 and shortly thereafter started Stonefly Nets. He now lives in the trout-rich waters of the Ozarks and handcrafts some of the sweetest wooden landing nets you'll see. 
I've been using these stonefly nets for quite a while now, and I'm excited to dig into another year. Ethan builds these nets custom, and you can select from four sizes and many different wood options. For Ethan, fly fishing is a memory created from a morning on a beautiful stretch of water casting a three-weight bamboo rod that his grandmother gave to his father, and then he passed to Ethan. Ethan is helping us create the same types of lasting memories every time we're on the water with these classic custom wood nets. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly to check out your custom net right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to stonefly. Okay, back to the show. When could somebody go there if they were going to like uh, that trip? You sounds interesting with your friends or the guys that are coming in to do pike, brook trout, you know, and then the salmon. When is the good time if you wanted to try to like get, you know, three or four species under your belt? When would you want to go? They come up in the spring. They're coming up right that end of May. That muskie, that's just kind of the beginning of the muskie. We didn't get up there last year because of the weather. I took them up two years ago. They only did three days and we didn't do the West Branch. They did bass, pike. So the bass, they're pre-spawn, they're spawning, and they're off, you know, they're some on bed, some off bed. So it's a mix that, that last week into the beginning of June. So we'll target smallies. I do Belgrades for them because it's on the way home. We get up early. I drive to the Belgrades. The major rivers is the Kennebec, the Androscoggin, the West Branch. I won't name the rivers. Anyone can find them, but the Rangeley area. So Rangeley is known. There's some things going on out there because there are smallies getting into the river, some of the rivers out there, which is affecting some of the brook trout because they're kind of spawning by what I understand of some of the same areas as the brook trout. If I wanted a big, big brook trout, I would always go to Rangeley or I have a remote pond that I have canoes stashed in. Again, won't name the pond. The pond that we're going to do full circle here that my dad was looking at fly rods for and the guy was going to take him in. The guy never took him in. So I was, I don't know, a couple of years into fly fishing or a year, a year and a half into fly fishing. There was a gentleman on my run, Michael Booten. I would deliver, um, was it called Raymond Rump? It was a fly tying material. I don't know if the company's still around. They sell the fly shops. He was a professional fly tire, made friends. So with Michael, I would take my hour lunch with him in the wintertime and we'd work on flies. And I told him about this pond. He's like, well, hexagena patterns and green drake patterns go in July. So Mike, show me how to tie these flies. And so my dad and I and another friend, Aaron, from UPS, we're going to do this trip. So we've never done a remote pond trip like this before. We have float tubes. We have tents. Our packs are way overweight. <laughs> yeah, been there. <laughs> half the trip is uphill. Half the trip is downhill. It takes like an hour to two hours to hike in there. It depends on who you are and what, how big your pack is. I think it took us two hours to get in there. We get in there. It's a little dinky pond, and we fish it all day. And part of the reason my dad's pack, he I think he had a six-pack of bud, bud in his pack. Oh, right. So he, he, he carries a beer in on this trip, too. And so my dad's like, okay, there's no fish in this pond. You know, I've got these hexagena patterns. I got the green drake patterns. I got Maine has a, a fly called the maple syrup. I got that. I got, you know, streamers. Like I said, I'm new to fly fishing. And my dad goes back to this little campsite that we made and he's drinking beers and it's getting darker and he starts screaming. 
get down here, get down here. You have to get down here now. Fish are rising everywhere. Get down here. So we're in float tubes on the other side. You know, we kick, we kick, we get across. I, I got the a big yellow hexagene of dry fly on. I see something rise behind me. I do a back cast. It lands what I call the circle, the rise. It hits a circle. Fish smashes it. I hook the fish. It's a 19-inch brook trout. Oh, wow. Nice. And it's a wild fish. You know, Maine has a huge stocking program. So, you know, they have ponds that they stock brookies in. This is a remote, wild Maine brook trout. What you see in, you know, on cover of magazines and over the years that... This is a big, big brook trout. 19-inch brook trout. You know, most people around the country, you know, they're happy with a 12-incher. That's a nice one. And over the years, my biggest brook trout is five and a half pounds out of that pond. Wow. And I always go in targeting the hex hatch. I haven't been in in two years because guide services is, I don't take, so I don't take anyone in there. For example, I don't take anyone from Maine. If they want to hire me and they want to go in, I don't take them in. Usually it's someone that flies in that I would take them into this pond, knowing that they couldn't go back to this pond. Right. And over the years, we have found easier ways into the pond where you don't go up over the mountain. There's easier ways to get in. So last time I was in was two years ago with Heidi. I taught her to fly fish and we had gone into this pond and I think she landed a 19. She only got one fish. You don't go in there to catch a lot of fish. We're in there to catch a trophy fish. You're in there for the beauty of the pond. It's like one of my favorite places. It's You kind of come up over this knoll and you see this pond through the through the pines and the cedar trees. And it's just, it's like a little piece of heaven. You know, we set up like a couple little pack tents. We're eating dehydrated meals. We each carry in a couple bottles of wine, not beer or, you know, some whiskey or something, something that's lighter to carry in. Um, we carry in, there's a spring nearby. So we'll go down and fill up, you know, a water jug or our water bottles. Everyone's carrying in frozen uh, water. Sounds amazing. Poland Springs bottles of water will freeze them. So by the time you get in, because you're, you know, it's it's warmer months when you're in there. And we're usually in there for a couple of days. It's usually you hike in, you fish that evening, fish all day the next day, but it's the evening hatch that you're looking for. And then hike out the third day. Yeah. How many places up there in that part of the woods are there? Can you go in the Rangeley area, just find a bunch of small, big brook trout ponds and sizes of lakes and fish? Um, You can. What I'm talking about is not in Rangeley. That's an interesting thing. Oh, not in Rangeley. Gotcha. Well, let's just take it to Maine in general. Let's just say if you think Maine, if you think lake, still water versus rivers, is it equal? Are people kind of equally fishing still water versus rivers or what's that look like? No, I think more people are fishing rivers. I think, you know, on the forum, when people are talking about, you know, it's too many people, you'll see someone pop on going, I didn't see anyone because I fished a remote pond. Yeah. And you guys have a lot of ponds, right? Yes. That's one of your things. You've got as many, probably as many ponds and lakes as you do, as you do rivers. Probably more. Yeah. And why is that? So that's a good question. That comes up again a lot, Kevin, you know, is like on the question, like why is, and I think Stillwater is growing but why do you think it still is not as popular as because there's a lot of opportunity, especially like in your area? I think like that pond, for example, I got to that pond and where do you start, right? Yeah, they're just harder. You think it's harder to catch fish. I think it's harder. You know, if we go fish a river, for example, we were at Salmon River here. And a lot of times in October, Stace and I go out, we go out there for nine, 10 days. And we fish a lot of, a lot of times in the fly zone. It's just the fish are there, the steelhead are there. On this one particular day, I said, let's just walk until we come to know people. It was a piece of water that we could look at that water and you could see the top of the pool, the bottom of the pool, 
we could read it, right? Where when we go to that pond, it's hard to read. As a new fly, I'm kind of talking about new fly fishermen too, because you got to break down the pond, like where will the fish be? Well, they're going to be where the bait is. Where's the bait? You know, where are the nymphs? They're going to be near grass. Where are the bait fish? They're going to be near grass. They're going to be near structure because they need protection. And that's where the fish will be. So not necessarily out there fishing the middle of the pond. You're probably going to fish the shoreline or the structure or the drops. Where are the nymphs going to be? They're not going to be in the bottom of the pond. They're going to probably be where the rocks are. You know, again, where the trees are underwater or the structure. And I think as a new fly fisherman, they don't really think of that. They just see uh, there's a pond. And I know I didn't. I didn't when I went there. And over the years, especially when you're there later in the summer and the water's warmer, they're going to be in the spring holes. And someone told me years ago that the bigger fish are near the spring holes. So if there's a spring hole, the bigger fish will be, you know, they're more dominant. They're going to have their head right in the spring hole and the smaller fish will be out on the tail. And that's what I've been told over the years. And it's just things that as a new fly fisherman never thought of until you get talking to an old timer. You know, that's all they've done. Or a guide. Or a guide. You know, there's a guy in the forum that he won't tell you where he's fishing, but he's catching eight-pound brook trout, seven-pound brook trout, and he only fishes ponds in Maine. And it's not in Rangeley. It's not in Rangeley in one of the rivers. So that's brook trout. If you're going to get a brook trout, some of these bigger brook trout, is it a, you know, go on these ponds or lakes? Is that the place to go, you know, around the state? The West Branch now, when I started on the West Branch years ago, occasionally I would see, you know, anyone listening to this that they know there's a spot that on the West Branch, they'll have these monster brook trout porpoise and you cannot get them to eat. I mean, you can throw streamers and nymphs and dry flies. And back 20 years ago, that was the only place I was seeing those fish. In the last five years, and I just think it has been with the management, unfortunately, we might be going backwards. Brookfield owns one of the dams, Ripajimus Dam, and they're having it's up for relicensing, and TU is really involved because the flows over the last year have been really crazy. But it seems like in the last five years, I've been catching, I mean, I had a client last year catch an 18-inch brook trout. Every year now on the West Branch, I'm getting clients catching, you know, 17, 18, and 19-inch brookies. I haven't broke the 20-inch mark on the West Branch. I've seen them. They're there. But it's more of a dominant, um, I feel like the West Branch, the East Outlet, there are dominant landlocked salmon east outlet right now because moosehead is the management on moosehead has been developing really like ice fishing you'll see a lot of people catching monster brook trout over the past couple of years even the east outlet they've been catching some monster brook trout in the east outlet and i think they're dropping down out of moosehead oh right they're coming out of moosehead what is the for you so you got these rivers, some of these bigger rivers have some of the bigger brook trout. If somebody was, you know, like you said, you've got a few spots, but if somebody was listening now and they just wanted to like go up to Maine, maybe they were going to be traveling through there for vacation in the summer. If they wanted to find some of these big brook trout, like what are your recommendations? Is there a resource or a place to go or how would they find out where to go? Maine fly fish. I mean, not to promote it, but if you go through, there's been a lot of spot berms over the years. I try to, I try to make them swear words on the forum. But if you look enough, you'll find them. There's, again, Facebook pages that I had to stop following because it was just, you know, they're telling you the places. I mean, in the beginning, I was doing write-ups on ponds and rivers and someone's like, people have to, they got to find some of the stuff on their own, which is true. 
you know, I throw out the East Outlet and West Branch because they're, you know, popular places. But I think a lot of it is you still got to talk to that old timer. Yeah. How do you find that old timer? Go to the fly shops. They're in the forums. But you, what you'll find is when you ask a question, you can't, you almost have to say, can you help me? Or you got to say it in a way where it's not spot burning because you'll get, you know, direct messages behind the scenes. And that's happened a lot in on the forum. They're not going to put it out on the forum because, you know, I'll post a thing. You might have 600 people read the post and only two people reply. So you got a lot of lurkers on Facebook, on you know any of these places, and they might not even be fly fishermen. Be just going to poach a fly fishing only pond for some reason, you know. So there's other reasons not to put those names out there because there's a small river coming out of um, Moosehead or going into Moosehead that, I think it might have been last year that they caught people worming. It's fly fishing only, catch and release, and the wardens caught people using worms. They go down in the dark. But they could have found that from posts because someone did a fishing report. I went to X River today like I used to do not knowing, and it still happens because people don't know. And as you get through, as we all evolve in our fishing, everyone has a different journey. And as we evolve in our journey – you know, we were like, oh, shoot, I probably shouldn't have said, you know, go to this pool on, you know, the East Outlet because there's brook trout stacked in that pool. Yeah. Who's filtering that for you guys on the forums over the years? Like like if somebody just comes on and says, like, here, you're able to control it and you're saying, hey, I can't, I'm not going to say those streams. But what if somebody comes on and says the streams that you're able to say today? It's a swear word. Like the West Branch is a swear word or the rivers out in Rangeley. So you got them all filtered. Yeah, I've filtered it. That's cool. Well, people get pissed about that. Then people get pissed, you know, so there's always something people get mad about. Yeah. What's the shops? I, I clicked on your website, the fly shop. It's uh, Hatchy, you got Annika, Rodden, Fly, Rangeley region, and then you got Eldridge Bros. Are those the four main shops? Um, you got, uh, so you got Eldridge. We'll start at the bottom of the state. So what we haven't touched on is Maine has great striper fishing, phenomenal striper fishing. And the Eldridge Brothers, they're in York. They're probably... Hashi's up here. He's probably the oldest fly shop that's still around. Eldridge, as you come up, you got All Points. That's new in the last five years, and they're in South Portland. You got Trident. Trident's a, I mean, they're a huge web fly shop too. Um, you've probably heard of Trident Fly Shop. They're in Portland area. Then you got Rangeley Fly Shop. Well, that's been around a long time too. That's an old school fly shop. Trying to think, and then as we come up, you got Annika right here in, in the Bangor Brewer area. Hashies is in VZ. He was, Hashies up there in age. He must be in his 80s, but he was from the heyday of the Atlantic salmon in Maine when we had 50,000 Atlantic salmons coming into Bangor, and people from all over the world came and fished Bangor for Atlantic salmon. But he has a little fly shop still there, rod repairs and stuff, and Annika does the same thing. So there's quite a few resources around the area. Lots of stuff. Yeah, depending where you're going. If you're coming in, so let's say they stop by a shop, and I'm just going to say Rangeley because that's kind of the most well-known area. But somebody wanted to go for and find some of these bigger brook trouts, and they say, hey, go out to this. Do you think they're going to be saying, go out to this lake or go out to this stream or like multiple opportunities? They would say go to the river. I think they're going to tell you the river. Like the lake, unless you're fishing a small pond, the lakes are huge. Okay. And Unless you have... Again, we go back to being able to read the water. I mean, they're huge lakes. Um, unless you hit a hatch, you know, I think the lake right in Rangeley is called Rangeley Lake. I know 
people that go fish it every spring, but they're trolling. You know, they're not fly fishing it. They're trolling. It would be rivers and remote ponds. If you're looking for a trophy, a main trophy brook trout, I mean, any of the major rivers. The Androscoggin, I would say no. I mean, I've never heard of big brook trout coming out of the Androscoggin. Um, there's rainbows. I mean, there's a mix. Yeah. Okay. If they were coming up with you, it would be more of a, like, if I was coming up, you know, this summer and say, hey, let's do this for brook trout, you'd be taking me. You got that pond you mentioned, but there would also be some rivers that we go and fish. I would say we're going to go to West Branch. It's a giant river. It's big white water. Again, everything depends on people's ability to fish, too. Yeah. Let's say you got somebody who's kind of a, a you know, an all-star can just go wherever and bomb through whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know, I got a day days available and I'd be like, let's go to the remote pond. You know, because it's an experience. We're targeting big brook trout. We're going a certain time of the year. But if you're just coming up randomly, say we're this is June, I have tomorrow open, you call me, hey, I want to go tomorrow, we're going to go to the river. And what's that? Take us to the river a little bit. Let's go down the brook trout path. So if we're going to the brook, you want to, you know, hopefully hit a bigger brook trout if you can. Take us to the river. What are we doing? What are we preparing? What is the, like, let's talk real quick, gear, rod, that sort of stuff. So I'm running, you know, I'm a 10 foot four weight for nymphing. So on the West Branch, over the years, I've kind of found places that more dominant brook trout, more dominant salmon. So if someone says, yeah, I really want to get a brook trout, I might hang out in a spot a lot longer, either nymphing, um, it depends on if there's a hatch going on. I'll spend a little more time in spots, a little bit different techniques, maybe. One thing I like to do is I'll throw out a um, Bow River bugger with a sink tip line, with a short leader, with a six weight or a seven weight. And there's like a couple spots where I'm going to throw it. You're going to let it go to bottom and we're going to strip painfully slow. You know, people that have fish with me, they know what I'm doing. And if you feel tension, you set the hook. It's either a fish or bottom. I caught an 18 inch brook trout doing that technique and, you know, on the river and had another client and get a 19. Wow. Is that in slow water? Is that like slower or is that like a riffle or are you like swinging it? Um, it's on the side of like particular place I'm thinking is I'm throwing the sink tip out in the fast water. You're letting it swing. So now it's right straight down from the drift boat, almost in dead flat water. So maybe on the swing, you might hit a, a salmon or you'll catch a brookie, but I'm really looking for a bigger brook trout. Yeah. So you're hitting them in the pillow water. You're hitting them in that pillow. Yep. We just did an episode, the overlap is interesting because we just did an episode with George Cook and he was talking about um, Chinook in Alaska, but you know, whether it's Chinook in Alaska, brook trout, or probably a lot of species, you know, that water where they're not hanging in the tank, the middle of the run, but they're off on that pillow, that softer water up off a ledge or right, getting some resting. That's kind of where you would hit those brook trout. Yeah. Over the years I, I used to, I mean, I was obviously know you'll catch them in the fast water but it's funny like i always felt like over the years i'd catch more landlocked salmon in the fast water and the brookies in the slower water i'm not sure why that is i don't know if the salmon are feeding harder more of an athlete and the brook trout are you know more of a but with that said i've had giant brook trout try to eat a 12 inch salmon that i have my line so you know it's interesting what's the sink tip you guys use like is that just like a normal like what would be the line if somebody wanted to grab that I'm with Airflow, so actually that last year, I think I put on that Kelly Gallup sink tip. Oh, cool. I think that's the streamer line, the Airflow. Yep. And uh, that's probably my new favorite. I've been using just their 
sink tip, the regular sink tip, but this one seems, I like it the way it casts. It seems like a thinner head and, and it casts better, but that's what I use. So it's probably, I think it's like a 200 grain, a 150, 200. And again, it all depends on, you know, how fast the water is too, that you're trying to get down through. The West branches in spots, I'm not going over it with the drift boat, in spots is class four rapids. I mean, it's in places, if you're awaiting the West branch, you can't step off the shore because it's ripping and the salmon will hold right up tight off the ledge drop. There's different places, you know, as you learn the river that you can get in and, and wade. A lot of times you're standing on, you're not even getting your waders wet. Yeah, that's perfect. Because it's, it's so dangerous. All right. What's the boat? So you guys are running drift boats? I run a adipose. Like just a full, like a normal style, uh, like rocker boat, not a pram. Like a skiff, the adipose. Oh, the skiff. Yeah. Yeah. Like the skiff. Yeah. Cause I don't, again, I'm not running class four. I mean, it might be class three, depending on the flow. One of the drops I have taken on the East outlet. When you run the East outlet, you're going to want all the guys over there are running high side boats because there's two huge drops over there and then you're dodging rocks. Oh, right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's two completely different water systems, same fish, but the rivers are so different. Right. And this is the West branch of the Penobscot. West branch of the Penobscot is what I guide on. Yep. Gotcha. Landlocked salmon and brook trout. And then sometimes you'll get a huge chub. Those are truly wild fish. And, you know, you can get fall fish up to 16 to 18 inches. And people, they think they're a trash fish, but that's when they're little is what the fish are eating. You know, they're eating chub eggs or eating baby chubs. For some reason here in Maine, the old thought is if there's chubs in the water to throw them in the woods because they're affecting the, you know, the brook trout. I've done articles in the newspaper about it. I've posted blogs about it. You know, that's the brook trout's food. Yeah, right. You know, yes, you can get these chubs up into 17 inches, but that's not what they're eating. They're eating, when they hatch out, that's what they're eating is all those little fish. Yeah, yeah. Brook trout are very aggressive. I made a mistake in that remote pond years ago. I put my finger in the mouth like a small mouth. It was like a 18, 19-inch brook trout, and it ripped my finger apart because they actually have teeth. Yeah. You wouldn't think a brook trout have teeth, but when you get a big brook trout like that, Cause I'm trying to, I'm in a float troop trying to handle this fish and the net and trying to get a fly out. So I'm like, wow, I'll just grab his mouth. I could do a bass and I was bleeding. Yeah. Wow. That is amazing. They're a very aggressive fish. You know, you hear in Maine, a lot of in the fall, white marabou streamers. Yeah. Is that what you're using when you're fishing that Kelly Gallup line and you're, and you're swinging? It sounds like you're swinging flies. It sounds like you're swinging streamers. I'm kind of swinging, but kind of not. Um, no, I'm, I'm usually a sculpin pattern is what it is. Um, that Godzilla sculpin has worked well. The Bow River bugger, but in a like the, an olive, basically an olive woolly bugger with the muddler head. That's what uh, I do well on. I tie more olive woolly buggers for smallmouth, landlocked salmon, and brook trout than I do any other fly. So it's woolly bugger. So basically, like you're saying, if you had the that sinking line and then the woolly buggers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had a day, I mean, we were just smashing landlocked salmon on the woolly bugger. It, again, it's, as you know, it's it's a harder way to fish. People are used to either flipping a nymph or throwing a dry fly, and then you add a sink tip line, you know, with a streamer, it's a lot harder. It's like someone going from trout fishing to fishing for stripers, which I highly recommend. Right. What percentage of the time are you doing it, nymphs? What are you doing the percentage-wise out there if you're going for a brook trout in the West Branch, are you doing like uh, nymph versus dry versus streamer? 
50-50 with streamers the least amount. I'm not a streamer guy unless like I'll throw a streamer on and if I get fish moving on them, then I'll stick to it. It depends on, I mean, like it's the year, so it's probably 50-50. Nymphing and dries. Is Euro nymphing, a th- is that a big thing? Yep. Yeah. Is the Euro game like that Euro style? No, I do indicate, like with clients, I just do indicator. If I did any type of Euro nymphing, it would probably be what I do for steelhead. I run no indicator. But with clients, it's always I'm always running an indicator with clients. Basically, a nine foot leader down to a stone. I always have a stone fly on any place I fish in Maine. I always have a stone fly, yellow or black, size eight. And then I'll off that I'll run, you know, depending if it's a cloudy day, bluing olives, uh, Hendrickson's, you know, big pheasant tails, copper johns, you know, the typical that probably fish everywhere in the country. Yeah, run it off the tag. Yeah, I just run it off the bend. Do you just tie the, the big fly on and then off the shank? Off the bend, sorry, not the shank. Yep. Yeah, improved clinch knot and pretty basic. I try to keep everything basic. You know, it's just, I always tell people, you know, get into fly fishing. You can make it what you want. I mean, you can do streamers only. You can do dry flies only, nymphing only. But I've always told people to fish for everything and learn to nymph. Learn to throw a streamer because... It makes you a better fisherman. If you like dry flies and you go do streamers all day for stripers, it's going to help your casting for your dry flies. They all have a purpose and they all make the other one better. Nymphing, nymphing, you're mending all the time. Well, when you throw a dry fly, you're still mending. So if you're spending days nymphing and then you come on a hatch, you're going to throw a dry fly. You're going to put a small mend in it. They each teach you to do the other. You know, I've been chasing, which people don't really know this, Maine has carp. And I've been obsessed with carp for the last, well, off and on fish for them. But in the last three years, if I get a day off, that's what I chase. So that's that's a whole other learning curve. Now you've got to put the fly, you know, in a coffee cup, basically. And in your, you know, you'd sight fishing. But if I didn't do all these other things, I couldn't do that fishing. If I didn't striper fish, I couldn't catch the muskie with the sink tip lines. With people, you know, I take them up there and teach them to I can teach them to nymph, streamers, dry flies. That's usually what I teach when people are learning to fly fish. I usually take them crappy fishing or I take them smallmouth fishing. I don't usually go to the West Branch to teach them to fly fish, which I have. And knock on wood, I'm going to say this live right now, I've never been skunked. No, Roy, there you go. That's a good uh that's a good record to have. Well, if, if we take it back to the, the brook trout, just to keep a, like a focus on you know, trying to think of somebody, if they were heading up there, you know, maybe they couldn't hook up with a guide. It would basically be just your normal trout stuff, maybe some heavier stuff, but you want to have basically a dry line set up, maybe your nymphing set up and even some streamers or, or just pick one. What is the, like timing wise, is it pretty much start, like you said, in late May, fish through September, and then just hit whatever hatches are on during the season on the West Branch? I'd say like anywhere in the country, June, July, anywhere in the state of Maine, it's a safe bet. Middle of June to the end of July, it's a safe bet. I usually tell people don't fish in August because the water temperatures are going to be above 70 in the rivers. Last year, you could fish the rivers in August, but you got to really take the temperature because you don't want to overstress the fish. So I only do bass in August. Um, but so someone's here in June and July, almost anywhere in the state, you can target brook trout and landlocked salmon. And then again, we'll go back to it middle of September. And in Maine, most of our 
season is April 1st to September, the last day of September. That's our season on, I would say, the wild brook trout um, spot, like the West Branch. They shut it down. There's no fishing um, after September 30th so they can spawn and they don't get harassed. Another popular place I didn't mention is Grand Lake Stream. Everyone knows about Grand Lake Stream, but it's a dominant landlocked salmon fishery. I mean, if you're coming to Maine, there's so many places. A lot of people go to Bar Harbor. A lot of people stay in southern Maine. A lot of people go over to western Maine. If you're in Maine someplace, you can catch brook trout someplace in the state of Maine. Yeah, so they're everywhere. So the brook trout, that's the cool thing. Is that, And then the West Branch, you know, like we've been talking, is a big river that has a chance at some big fish. And sounds like, I mean, do you need on that river, do you need a boat to fish it? Or could you just walk in and are there places to stay and, and camp and hang out and just fish off the bank? The cool thing is there is a campground right on the West Branch, Big Eddie Campground. Great people run it. It's actually owned uh, by Chowonki. It's, a, I think, a kid's camp, a nonprofit kid's camp. And so you'll see them up there uh, teaching them to whitewater kayak. They'll be up there all summer long. That's kind of cool. It, the West Branch is a whitewater rafting river, too. So, you know, a lot of people, they'll go do water rafting one day and then do a fishing trip another day. Yeah, it sounds pretty awesome. So you have that campground right on the river. A place I put a lot of people is the Big Moose Inn if they're not staying with us. Or, you know, I'll randomly get people calling kind of like what we're talking about. Hey, can you give me some information where to go? You know, we're going to be, we'll hike in Mount Katahdin because Mount Katahdin is either the end or the beginning of the Appalachian Trail. depends on which way you're heading. Oh, right. And a lot of people day trip Katahdin. They'll just climb to the top and back down and they're up there for the weekend and they want to fish one day. And, you know, the Big Moose Inn, which is... They're a little inn. They have some cabins. They got a little uh, pub. There's a little store next to it. Um, across the street, there's a fly out. A guy flies you into remote ponds. Don't know the name of the business, but years ago, um, my dad and I and my uncle, we flew into uh, Rainbow Lake. And this was before my fly fishing days, but there's blueback trout in there, brook trout, which is an Arctic char, which Maine's been reclaiming some ponds for those. Farthest place south that have uh, blueback Arctic char. Oh, right. Okay. Arctic char, right? Yeah. Floods Pond, which is owned by the Bangor Water District, and you cannot fish it. Um, that's, by what I understand, is the farthest place south that has them. They actually manage the water for the bluebacks, and you can't fish it because it's city water. So it's kind of a win-win for those fish. Um, but over the years, they've reclaimed some other places. Today's episode is sponsored by Drift Hook who has pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your fly fishing journey. Each kit is organized by species and includes instructional videos and easy-to-follow guides. Their fly shop quality flies are hand-tied and inspected before being carefully packed into their durable, double-sided, water-resistant fly boxes. I've got one of those boxes right here, the Drift Hooked Streamer Surge, and it is super, uh, super clean. It's packed uh, with everything you need. Flies are well made. It's got a, a row of some beads. It's got a row of uh, some rabbit strips. It's got a little bit of flash there. As I flip it over on the other side, it's packed with some smaller flies. It's got some muddlers and, uh, and it fits right there. Double-sided box, nice and clean. They have everything from nymphing to dry flies, streamers to Euro nymphs and everything in between. Uh, if you're brand new to it or know somebody who wants to get into fly fishing or needs a good present, uh, this is a great opportunity. Uh, I would love to get this thing in my stocking, I can tell you that much. 
You can check out Drifthook right now by heading over to drifthook.com and using swing at checkout to receive 15% off your next order. That's Drifthook, D-R-I-F-T-H-O-O-K.com, drifthook.com, and use swing, S-W-I-N-G, at checkout to get 15% off your next order and some of these sweet custom fly patterns. Okay, back to the show. What's that place, the famous kind of up in Canada where people go for brook trout? Labrador. Yeah, Labrador. Yep. What's the comparison? Obviously, I'm sure it's a lot different, but as far as brook trout fishing, Labrador versus what's down in Maine, how's that? I'm not sure if you've been up there at all. I have not. I mean, I dream about it, but you know, I, I know people that have gone up there. They're much larger. So I think like Labrador, you're averaging bigger fish consistently. Because these are wild. Are these rivers or these lakes up there in Labrador? I think they're both uh, like, you know, when I was getting into fly fish, Osprey Lake was, there was someone in Maine that owned Osprey Lake as a fishing lodge, but it was a lake. You actually went and fished a lake, but the rivers around, um, you know, they would have fish too. By what I see, you know, I've read and looked at, it's a lot of rivers up there, but also, which is interesting is they have a lot of big Northern pike too, which is kind of interesting that they coexist together. Yeah. Gotcha. That's cool. Yeah. And we haven't dug into everything today. I mean, obviously we've, you know, hit on, I wanted to dig into brook trout a little bit and just touch on some of the main, which we've done. Maybe we could just think about brook trout, you know, and just maybe think of a few tips. If somebody's, it sounds like, you know, the gear, there's lots of diverse ways to do it. You could probably look up some hatch charts right at the fly shops. And I think it'd be fun to catch a big brook trout on a dry fly. You know, that'd be amazing. And on a streamer as well. What is the river? What would be a few tips if somebody's fishing the West Branch and they're out there on their own? What do you tell somebody if they're, or maybe even somebody that's with you? What are the tips to get them into some fish? I'd say not necessarily the West Branch. If anywhere in Maine, you know, a fly selection is caddis. Maine has a lot of caddis all over the state. What type of caddis would you be using? Are you talking a dry or a wet or what would that caddis pattern? Uh, like a elk hair caddis, a gauded caddis, um, the X caddis. There is a West Branch caddis. You can look that up. There is a fly that is very popular. Um, what's it called? The Nancy Prayer. I think that's another caddis pattern that's really popular. Bars, stone, black and yellow for nymphing, the Copper Johns. You know, the 14 to 16, pheasant tails 14 to 16, same with the caddis. If you put it in then some streamers, I have a streamer called the McKay Special I designed years ago. The Warren's Worry. Um, as just if you're hitting a river. Basic streamers, any, you know, woolly buggers, black, greens, um, they work. But if you're targeting brook trout, like I said, that softer water um, in the rivers, sometimes just if you just look, you'll see monster brook trout rising if there's a hatch going on. Right. Then you're going to go through, you know, I'd have a large selection of flies, you know, emergers, nymphs, streamers, dries. A lot of stuff that works out west works here. And sometimes, them seeing different caddis patterns that's fished out west, you know, will work here. Or throw some purple in or something like that. Yeah, you know, stimulators for the stones. If you're doing a pond, but again, buggers, depends on the pond. But if you've got a pond that's silty, I would have some uh, like salamander patterns, like maybe a black leech pattern. If you're in July, from the end of June into July, that's when our hexagenas are coming off. 
which they're the big yellow mayflies. I'd have those in dries. I'd have those in emergers. I'd have those in nymphs. I've caught them like... Do those come off of the river or the lake? The lake. I personally have never come across a place in Maine in a river that they come off. Like in Michigan where they go and they target the big browns on the hexagenas at night. Yeah. I've never come across it. Not saying that it doesn't happen, but our rivers are very rocky where what I've found is in red, the hexes like that silt, that muddy bottoms. And Maine has a lot of uh, cedar trees on the outer edges, decomposing trees. So it's like the pond I fish, you couldn't wait it because it's you're going to be knee deep in just muck and decomposing trees. And, and so, you know, during the hex hatch, during the day, I'll throw a nymph on a sink tip, I mean, on a floating line and just strip it below the surface and, and you'll catch fish sometimes. Just depends on at what stage they're targeting the hexes. But a, a nine foot five weight, you could pretty much fish anywhere in Maine for brook trout. Yeah, five weight, right. Unless you, if you've got a big one, then you'd have to work it in, but that's, that's good. As we get out here, let's do a couple of kind of items not directly related to fishing, but I wanted to hear about was um, podcasting and then um, some on kind of off the grid stuff. What is your, so you've got a podcast. I know you started it, but it's been a little bit of work. Talk about that. Tell us the name of the podcast and then what your podcast kind of tech looks like. Like how have you done the episode so far? Yeah, it's called On the Reel with Kevin and Stace, which I haven't really talked much about Stace, but she's the um, backbone of what we do. And uh, here she makes all my sandwiches and stuff. So with the podcast, I wanted to bring her into it because she's a huge part of what we do. And it's a different perspective. And her and I just basically shoot the shit is what we're doing. So it's kind of, I didn't really get into this with you, but for her and I, it forces us to sit down and talk because life is so busy. Yeah. So totally, that's great. Love that. We'll set aside some time and her and I will chit chat. I actually, on one of them, I think I've done five, four or five, but one of them I did with my parents talking to my dad about some of the stories when he was growing up and like your podcast is different than what we would do. You know, ours is more the, like I told you, it's like that Joe Rogan sitting around shooting with the type of people and yeah, and where it goes, you know, we did one talking about getting in a car accident down in Florida on last spring when we went down our sound is if you've listened to it sometimes it sounds good sometimes it's not and we kind of stopped doing it because i was getting frustrated on the sound and i think we've been actually talking since i've had a few days off that we're going to sit down and maybe bring in a couple other people other guides i have a new guy joe he might help me do it he also does some hunting so that would bring another side to it Um, a little bit of hunting in the mix and you know personal just chit-chatting you know, sometimes we'll talk about what we did over Christmas. Some people want to hear it, but some people won't. But it'd be, you know, for us, it's 99% fishing, whatever we do. Yeah, that's cool. So are you guys planning? And that's kind of the cool thing. You still have the opportunity. It's there. So you can just post a new episode. And if you get something, you can keep it rolling, right? Yeah, we did it through, I think, Anchored. It was called Anchored. We just basically two speakers did some searching online. I'm all about free as much as I can. So free software. What were you guys using for your editing software? I can't remember. Every time we did a search, it always popped. Yeah, there's a couple of good free ones um, on there that you can get. But what we found was I bought two microphones so Stace could have one, I could have one, or if we had a guest, Stace and I could sit next to each other. That software only records, which I didn't know, only records one microphone at a time. So then it got to the point where I had to set the microphone so the microphone will go sideways, 
back and forth one way or the whole room. So then I had to set it so it'd do the whole room or back and forth. So then we could talk to other people. That was one of the sound issues that we kind of discovered. Now that's a learning curve that, you know, we found, but yeah, I mean, we enjoyed it. I did one with, uh, we went steelhead in last March. It took a couple, Joe and another guy out there. and We went out and at the end of, you know, fishing for three days, we sat down and Joe did some searching because we did, we recorded like three times and the sound, you could only hear me. And they were off in a distance and Joe did a search and he's the one that discovered that it only records one person at a time or set the microphone so it does the whole room. So that podcast was pretty good because it was all about steelhead fishing. Their perspective on what I just showed them, fishing in March for steelhead and hooking into those big fish, that was a fun one. But I found with the podcast is we do a really good podcast. We have a great flowing conversation and then we go back and listen to it and you can't hear one of us talk. Yeah. And then you go back and try to hit it again. Yeah, there's something. I think you're in the early stages <laughs> of it. Like we said, and I love to throw out, you know, kind of get people lined up because there are a couple of devices that make it easier in the, the Zoom. PodTrack P4 is one, and you could pick up the, like the Samsung Q2U mic, which is, I think is like 60 bucks. It's like a pro studio quality mic and ATR2100, two really good mics that are under $100. So, I mean, literally for two mics... The P4 is like a couple hundred bucks. I mean, for 300 bucks, you can have a full, literally a podcast studio that probably was $2,000, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. It gets your levels in. That's the other thing you get. You get multiple tracks with the P4 and you get your levels. It'll level it out for you a little bit. And then, you know, like you said, Audacity for PC and then GarageBand. Yep. Audacity, that's the software that I used, I think. Yeah. And Audacity is great. I mean, you got to just get your stuff lined up to get separate tracks and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. That was a problem. Yep. Well, that's one thing. It's good to hear. Well, let's keep, hopefully we can keep you going there and we'll get, um, you know, maybe, maybe we'll see another podcast pop out and uh, I'll definitely stay in touch on that. You'll probably have a few people checking it out from this one. Um, and then what about, let's talk really briefly just, and we'll take it out of here with the grid off the grid stuff. So you went like six years being off the grid. It sounds awesome. I mean, I think trying to do that for a lot of people seems probably impossible, but talk about that. What did that look like? Was that challenging? And then how does it look like now you got going? The thing is for everyone else, they thought it was crazy. We actually enjoyed it. I mean, we're remote. When you come here, we're in 40 minutes north of Bangor. Bangor's in the next little city. Um, we're on the water. Getting here kind of sucks, but when you're here, it's, it's heaven. And so in the beginning, we'd have issues like we didn't have enough batteries. And before I got powered, that's what we were looking at, upgrading our batteries and getting new batteries. I think we have eight batteries, and batteries, I think, are 250 to $300 a pop. Or deep cycle? Yeah, but they're special. Or different. Yeah, the deep cycle, but they're the special uh, off-the-grid batteries. I don't know if they hold the charge longer, but they're expensive. And I think we have eight. We probably should have 10 to 15 to hold the charge longer. Because we ran, so two years ago, we put a, a full well pump in the river. So it's the same pump that you would put in a, you know, if you drill the well, you'd put it down in the bottom. This is what we, we have in the river. So now I bought a heat line out of Canada that goes inside the pipe. Like we don't have snow right now, but if we had two feet of snow, it'd be all melted around that black pipe. And it runs from underneath our place right to the pump that goes into the brook. And then I put a pond bubbler I attached to the top of the pump. I put a screening around the pump and then I put a bubbler above it because over the years, I'd have to climb down. I'd have to put waders on, climb down over the bank and get in the river and break all the ice 
around it so it wouldn't freeze because it would keep freezing down below. So this year we put a bubbler and so far it's working. The bubbler will keep the water moving, even though it's a moving brook, it's still the shelf will build up off the, the shoreline and eventually go right across the whole brook. And the bubbler is going to hopefully keep that water moving so it won't ever freeze. That's my plan. But yeah, we did, uh, we have a, my house is crazy, but it's 20, I think 28 by 28. It's a cathedral ceiling with a, a loft. We sleep in the loft. We have basically two offices and a bathroom, and the, the floor plan is all open. And uh, we have a screened-in porch off the front. So it's a camp. If anyone came, you know, if they were going to build something, this would be a camp. I'm all about no debt. So this was inexpensive. It's a small house. Um, it's not a tiny house. It's a small house. So with the pump, we needed more batteries because when you run the, you know, when that pump kicks on, it drains your batteries really quick. So I did it as cheap as possible. You know, everything's been a process. So, you know, I got a cheap inverter. I started with like four batteries. Someone gave me some old panels. Um, and then I upgraded to a little bit higher end panels. And then I went and did more batteries. I got a better inverter. And as you go, I think if we were going to have the system, the system was anywhere from 10 to 20,000 for a system that could handle the well pump. So that's, you know, here, that was the big drawer, the well pump. Um, the coffee maker, believe it or not, I would plug the coffee maker in in the morning and hit coffee and it would drain my batteries. Wow. Damn, the coffee maker. Yeah. yeah. But that was when I only had four batteries. But still, the, even though... Right. The microwave. <laughs> I'm assuming you don't have a microwave. Or do you? No, no microwaves. We don't have a microwave. Everything's cast iron. People make fun of me, but everything's cast iron. Oh, that's awesome. No microwave. So we you know, have to turn the stove on and heat it. It's a gas. Yeah. So when you roll in there to your place, let's just say I'm rolling in and I'm going to take one of your bunk, you know, you got the bunk thing. When you go in there, what does this look like? Are you like on just your own like property or there other places around? Is it like forested? What, what's that look like? It's a dirt road. It's like any camp road that in Maine, um, I have three and a half acres here. Like I'm, you know, I'm sitting here in my vehicle talking to you. I'm looking out like down river. So the, the sun rises down river. That's it. Um, we're surrounded by pines. So when I tell people, like, if I'm doing a show and, you know, oh, you're from Maine. Yeah, we give free lodging. Here's my business card. People are always skeptical. <laughs> Be- yeah, because sure, free lodging. Yeah, what is Free that? lodging. Okay, <laughs> why are you giving me free lodging? And But when they get here, the bunkhouse, basically, it's a big room, like I said, and people love the beds. They're the foam we bought uh, on Walmart. I think we ordered them online. Yeah, that stuff works great. <laughs> and people swear by these beds that we have. I don't. Yeah, this is the memory foam stuff, right? Yeah, the memory foam stuff. Yeah, bought it from Walmart back. I don't know how many years ago when we built a bunkhouse, but I think it was a hundred bucks for each. Each one of those people swear by them. Yeah, I think they still are a hundred bucks. That's right. <laughs> yeah, people swear by those. Um, but yeah, we're surrounded by woods. You can, like I said, you when you pull in, it's not a rundown camp. It's a nice camp with a tiki bar. If they've never been here, they. You know, the first thing they I show them the the bunkhouse, and I said, but then I'll say, hey, let's go really see the the main event here, and they walk around to the front of the my place, and there's a full tiki bar set up. I'll have music playing when they get here. Yeah, what is a tiki bar? How would a tiki bar be different than say a just any other bar? So it's it has everything from Florida. So we have flamingos, we have we have hanging lights, we have a uni pizza oven out there, we have a popcorn machine, um, we have um, license plates. It's more of that, that feel when you go to Florida. 
So you brought a little south. Yeah, we brought a little, like a little bit of Florida um, here. Because, you know, when we're down there and we go to a restaurant, it's always that outdoors feel. They call it, you know, you're up there, Tiki Bar, you know, whatever restaurant. And, and it's always that feel of tropical. and. Yep. So is your bar outside? Yep. Is your Tiki Bar literally, are you sitting outside? Yeah. So it has um, has a roof. And the roof is, geez, I don't remember the measurements, 17, 18 by 18. It's a big roof, a big floor. Um, it has a back wall. And then we have a grill against the wall. We actually have these fans. We plug in these fans. So when it's in August and you're out there and it's warm, we got fans blowing air on you, almost like if you were (laughs) down in Florida. That's cool. (laughs) And you have electricity now, right? So that's the difference. You actually have electricity going there. Yeah. So like before, if we were going to be out in the Tiki Bar all night, I'd kick the generator on. I wouldn't necessarily run off the solar. And the solar we'd only do in the summertime. Um, because we, like I said, we have these giant pine trees that block the sun. To have someone come in and cut these trees down, it's like three grand, and it's crazy. So then, I might as well have electricity if I'm going to cut down these, because I have like three or four of these trees to cut down. So, you know, you're talking twelve thousand dollars to cut trees down just so you can have solar, and then you got to upgrade your system. So to have one pole put in, I think we paid four thousand dollars to have one pole put in, and our bill's thirty-five bucks a month. Where my friends that have Everything's on the grid. You know, they got $250 a month bills. We're still off the grid, but we have lights. When I get up in the morning, you know, I don't have to run out. Yeah, you have to run out and uh, yeah, do the whole thing, which you would do with your off the grid. What are those things? So Friday night, I got home. We were out of power because we had that big storm that came in. We had no power. So I went out, put gas in the generator when I get home. So we had Christmas lights and watching Christmas movies Friday. And I just let the generator run out. I get up in the morning. It was... I think it was 15 degrees out. So I'm in my PJs. I go out, slippers on, walk across the ice. It's away from the house, so it wouldn't be loud. We have a little shed. And so I go over there. I got to fill up the generator full of gas and then kick the generator on. And then, boom, we have power. It was kind of like, you know, I hadn't done it since last year. But, you know, with that said, people are like always, I'd come out here in the middle of winter on a, you know, Saturday morning. There's no wind. It's pitch black. You got the stars. You can hear the ice cracking in the river. So normally I'd just be inside. If I had, like now I have electricity, I don't go outside and start a generator in the morning. It's actually very peaceful when you come out. It's cold. It's brisk. Like I said, you can hear the river, the, the water running underneath the ice, and it's cracking. You know, get the stars because it's pitch black out, and there's, you know, there's no city lights here. It's very peaceful. Most people kind of frown on it because you first thing you get up in the morning, you don't want to go outside when it's 10 degrees out. <laughs> <laughs> How close are you guys to driving to like the next bigger city? For me to get to the UPS center, it's um, 40 minutes. So you got Bangor. Perfect. This is good. Well, thanks for giving us a little flavor of that. Well, there's definitely like always, there's lots we could dig into, but I think we'll take it out of here. Let's do the, um, we got this segment we used to do. We're calling it the two minute drill now because in the past I would go a little bit too long. So I'm kind of, uh, I'm setting a timer now so we can do this. And I got a few questions I'll walk through you here, but let's just think of it like doing it as fast as possible okay. and then we'll take it out of here. Does that, does that sound like we'll give that a shot? We'll try it. All right. Let's see how it works. So the first one is um, basically tips. This is kind of the tips, tricks, and stuff like that. So give us one quick brook trout tip. You're fishing for brook trout. You're trying to get a brook trout. What is one you throw out there? Uh, Fish in slow water. All right, perfect. One fly for brook trout. Crystal olive woolly bugger. Okay. 
And then one resource. What would be a resource that you'd send people? You mentioned the fly shops. Anything else you'd recommend in your site? Of course, I'm going to tell you mainflyfish.com is the place to go. But uh, IFNW, they've been doing really good. Main IFN, IFNW, I don't know if that's a website. but Okay. Yeah, I'll look that up. They've been doing like putting videos up um, and doing a lot of blogs. Uh, main IFNW. Perfect, perfect. Well, let's keep this rolling. This is good. we got about a minute left. So conservation issue. What's one throughout there that people could check out, dig into? Uh, the, the one that I'm kind of been involved with or kind of been asked to help out or is the Ripper's Gemus Dam on the West Branch is being relicensed. Brooksfield is up for relicensing. So TU is involved. IFNW is involved. Um, the issue is the flow. They're, they're dropping the flow too low. They're supposed to have a minimum flow to protect the fish and they're dropping it way lower. And then they'll go on the other side and just crank it. I wasn't involved because I was at UPS, but they had a bunch of guys from TU, some guides, um, Sarah that runs Big Eddie Campground. They asked Brookfield to drop the flow to their, what they think is reasonable. And then they went and observed all the insects that were high and dry. They actually found dead fish. They actually found fish trapped in pools, which Brookfield said wasn't happening. That's a hot topic on the West Branch right now for Maine. And always stripers in Southern Maine is always a topic. Perfect. I'll throw that out there. And that wraps up the quick little uh, two-minute uh, drill summary. So and the final question for you here is, and I know you've you've had some, uh, I heard this somewhere, but you were able to get out of debt, right? That was something like a lot of us, right? Debt has been, for various reasons, you know, I've been in debt in the past and all that stuff. What is your one tip for helping somebody if they're in debt? What do they do to get out of debt? I set up a budget and uh, you got to stick to it. And I cut up all the credit cards. There you go. I haven't had a credit card in three, four years now. Love that. It's hard to run a car in Florida, but you end up with the, you don't, you don't get the Jeep or the the Camaro, but you can still run a car without a credit card, but it's, it's not the fancy one. There you go. Yeah. I love that. No, you hear a lot about the miles and stuff and people like, yeah, you got to get a credit card for miles and stuff. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's hard to control that because it starts going and then it gets out of control. And now it's like, oh, now you're paying off debt. Yeah. I mean, I've been able to save, actually save money because before my monthly budget was a house payment, a credit card payment, a vehicle payment, a boat payment. You know, I use the debt a little bit to like, if I was going to buy a vehicle, I try not to go over 20,000 because I would try to pay that off in a couple of years. If at worst case scenario, luckily we've been, this is going on our second or third year with no debt and big things, the house payment, we have no house payment. Yeah. How'd you get, so the three and a half acres, it depends, right? All this country property values are crazier and other. Is Maine pretty, pretty standard or is it kind of high values? What's that look like? Uh, the lakes are really high. Now, a lot of people don't want to build on a river. It's people like that. But I mean, I say that the river frontage is people are jacking up the price higher than what the banks are praising it for, hoping someone from out of state won't care and pay the money. Like I got three and a half acres. Next to me, there's one acre for double what I paid for mine, and someone was going to buy it, and it appraised for what I paid for mine. Oh, right. And that's just land. Is that just a lot of these, like, did you buy yours as just land? Yeah, just land. Yeah, cleared it myself. Gotcha. If What would be a reasonable, if somebody wanted to buy, say, five acres, three to five acres of just land now, what would be a reasonable going price of something out, out there? Uh, it's hard to say. Like, on the major river... Like Rangeley, you couldn't find land cheap. Greenville, you cannot find land cheap. You have to find the not, you know, like Greenville's are like little Montana town. Rangeley is like a little Montana town. 
You know what I mean? It's like yeah, those little popular towns that out-of-staters buy the property. So the property price is so high. So if you're going to want property on water, find a place that not everyone's going to. And that's probably where you want to be anyways. Exactly. Yeah, you want to be away from the crowds. You know, so a piece of property, and I randomly look, and it varies. So it's hard to say what, you know, where I am, you know, the guy's asking near me, 1.8 acres, he's asking 53. It only only appraised for 32. You know what I mean? I have three and a half acres, but I've had the land for 10 years. I paid 32 for it. So it's probably worth maybe, I don't know, 50 now. I don't know. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. No, that's good. Thanks for taking us down that route. It's always interesting because, you know what I mean, for me, we're we're on the process of kind of looking for something like that, right? Maybe some property. And it's always interesting because there's a lot of places all around the country, you know what I mean, like where you can get property. So, and there's different, you know, values. Yeah. And, but, it, you know, if you want it like Portland, Maine, the house prices are, are crazy, you know, anywhere south. If you go north of me, there's less people and more water than probably than people. And you probably could get land on water reasonable. That's right. We'll hit you up. That's what I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> if somebody's thinking about moving there, we'll hit you up and uh, see where we can take this further as far as real estate and stuff like that. But, uh, but no, this has been fun, Kevin. I think, um, like we said at the start, Maine Fishing Adventures and MaineFlyFish.com is the best place. And we'll put links to all this in the show notes and everything there. So um, we'll be good to go. Well, uh, thanks for all the time today and, and shedding some light on the brook trout and just, I guess, really every, really, this is kind of a more of a general episode. So I think it, gives people another flavor of, of Maine and uh, hopefully we'll have a few people connect with you down the line. But thanks for your time. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity to be on it. So there it is. Heading into Maine and to connect with Kevin. Uh, this is sounding like a pretty awesome one. Pike, uh, smallmouth, brook trout, landlocked Atlantic salmon. Everything we covered today, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash 402. 402 will give you some show notes. Uh, within those show notes, you'll get uh, extra resources, a lot of stuff we talked about today. Uh, we'll have a couple of videos hopefully in there you can check out on what they have going. Maybe see some big brook trout, see what that looks like. Um, this is a cool part of the country, the very northeast part of the U.S., and up there, uh, up in brook trout country. So excited uh, that you had a chance to connect uh, with us today. Quick listener shout-out. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to Ron Simmons. Uh, he connected with uh, with us on email through our newsletter. And Ron noted he's at the beginner stage. His favorite uh, fish uh, for fly fishing is bluegill and steelhead. And he says he just moved to the uh, UP Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, so it sounds like brook trout is on the bucket list. Uh, Ron, just want to say thank you for checking in on email. Appreciate you for supporting the podcast. And we got a bunch of great episodes on bluegill on a warm water uh, steelhead lots of good stuff around uh, your neck of the woods michigan it's definitely a hot spot so i'll connect with you and give you some other resources as well but big shout out thanks and uh, check back with me anytime if you have questions if you want uh, to get a shout out on this podcast you can send me an email dave at wetflyswing.com or go to the website wetflyswing.com and just join the newsletter good chance to get updated for other information we have going on top of the podcast this will connect you to our school program. Sounds like Ron might be in touch with that. Might be a good fit for him. So um, that's the best way. And then we can give you a shout out on this episode. Okay, we just turned the corner on 400, 402 to be exact. 402, we're heading to 500. That's going to be uh, really right around the corner as we're turning the page on the content we're doing in 2023. I'm excited for you to be here on our journey. 
I'm excited to connect with you. If we haven't done yet, uh, please reach out to me and let me know you're listening. If you haven't, if we haven't talked yet, uh, it's my best chance to create some content and podcast episodes that you will love. I hope you are having a great afternoon, great evening, or great morning, wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by today. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.